Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. We ask you to show us what you would have us to see through the rest of the study of this chapter and the looking at the millennial kingdom. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 10. And remember last uh, week we were studying about the millennial kingdom being seen by Isaiah. Uh, very clearly it was the kingdom of Jesus being set up and being ruling from, the, from Jerusalem. And so starting at verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide you in the, in the dust for fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of men shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord shall, of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up and upon the oaks of Bashan and upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up and upon every high tower and upon every fenced wall and upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all pleasant pictures. And the loftiness of men shall be bowed low down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. <clears throat> and all the idols he shall utterly abolish, and they shall go into the holes of the rock and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he rises up and shakes terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his gold, idols of gold which they made for, one of, for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats and go into the clefts of the rock and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord, for the glory of the majesty which he rises to shake terribly upon uh, on the earth. Cease you from men whose breath is in his nostrils for therein he is to be accounted of. All right. <clears throat> So here we are now with the judgment of Christ coming down upon those that are disobedient during the millennial kingdom. And remember, last week we talked about the millennial kingdom. Thousand-year reign of, of Jesus. He's going to reign with an iron scepter. But sin nature is still going to abound, and people are still going to want to sin. And he's not going to be letting them sin during this period of time because he's going to rule with that iron scepter. But there's going to be many that want to. And at the end of that thousand years... Satan is going to be let loose from, the, from his chained up bondage in, in hell and be let loose to, for one last hurrah to get men to sin against God. He'll great, create this great army against God. And remember, we just talked about how that shows the utter depravity of man, that they'll want to sin even after a thousand years of a virtually perfect world, perfect government, perfect Perfect uh, growing seasons, no famines, no, no storms, nothing, nothing like that. People living to be, you know, it says, you know, says that if they live, die at 100 years old, they'll be considered a child. So we're probably looking at pretty close to the entire 1,000 years. People born during that period of time are expected to live for the millennial kingdom. And here we're going to see God ruling with that iron rod. Uh, so at verse 10, enter into the rock and hide you in the dust. For the fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. And this is this idea of hiding in, and I wouldn't think this one is actually part of the, the good one. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. I think of, when I read that, I thought about Jesus. He is the rock that we're to hide in. And I think there are going to be those who are going to hide in him during that period of time. And we look at this, and by the reading of Revelation that talks about Satan being re released at the end of the millennial kingdom, it sounds like the majority of human beings, even after a perfect rule, are going to join up with him. And you know, how many times have you heard people say, well, you know, if people just had the right training and the right conditions, they wouldn't be bad. You know, they deny the sin nature. And they go, well, you know, they wouldn't be bad if they just didn't learn to be bad. And that's the, being taught in the schools. That's being taught in our, in our psychology and our sociology and being taught to our kids. If you, know, if you just didn't have rules to break, you wouldn't be bad. If you just you know, had all the freedom you wanted, you'd be good. And this last thousand year period of the millennial kingdom will be that proof that even if man's put in a good, perfect environment, he will still choose to sin, still want to sin, still desire to sin. 
Because our human nature, as our sin nature that is in us, is evil. And because we are Christians and we are saved, God comes into us and he starts crucifying that sin nature. Otherwise, even the believers would always want to do what's wrong and what's right, you know, right in our own eyes and what's wrong in God's eyes. But he comes in, he crucifies our sin nature, and he starts changing us to be more like him. And we get to the place where, at least in certain areas of our life, we begin to hate sin and despise the sin. Now, it would really be nice if we had it in all areas of our life, but God takes time and works with us. And the longer we walk with him, the more we get that areas of hatred for sin. And it doesn't mean we mistreat people because of their sin, but it is something that we no longer enjoy it. We no longer think it's cute. We no longer think it's even interesting to think about or participate in these type of sins. And this is something that we enter into Christ and he protects us. He gives us the strength. Then he says, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughty, the, the high looks of, of man. Have you ever dealt with somebody who gave you, gave you that kind of I'm better than you impression and, and just stood above you? You're, you're totally worthless, at least in some area that they, that they think they're superior in. That's what he's saying. That kind of look, that kind of attitude is going to be humbled. And you know, this is something for us as Christians we need to be very careful of. When God teaches us to grow in a certain area of our life and get out of a sin that's in, that he's teaching us to be involved in, or get out of rather than be involved in, uh, we need to be very careful that we don't get this superiority complex over people who are still suffering with that that particular sin, whatever that sin might be. Okay, and all of us have got certain sins we have grown out of that God has crucified in our life and we've come out of it. For some people it might be alcohol. They've gotten out of alcohol and then they kind of look, start looking down on all those people, especially Christians who are still suffering from being with alcohol as a sin. Now the problem is that person's looking at you and saying, well, you haven't, come, you haven't got victory over the sins that I've gotten out of. You know, and this is why we've got to be very careful and deal with each other in love and in encouragement. Because if we really want to start comparing each other to each other, we would have failures and, and, and successes all over the place. But God doesn't grade on any kind of curve. He grades on perfection. And if you're not perfect, then, you're, then you don't deserve anything that you're getting. And we need to be able to treat others in that grace and mercy that God gives us and not look down on people. You love those who love you, what, what more are you doing than the world? If you, you know, invite somebody over to dinner knowing that they're going to invite you over for dinner sometime later, you're really not doing anything nice. You're just, you know, all right, I'm doing nice to you and you're, you'll do nice to me. And not that that's wrong in one sense, but by the same token, for never reaching out to those who need it, then what are we, or, and can't pay back, we're really not doing anything. If we're not reaching out to a Christian who's learning to grow, to encourage them, then we're really not doing much good. And this is why we have the body of Christ, to encourage one another, to lift one another up. When, they, when you fail and when you, when you see problems, you, go, you want somebody to come along and say, hey, you know, come on, let me help you. Let me help you walk a little bit, or let me lift you up. It's not, there is victory at the end of the, <laughs> end of the tunnel. Uh, you know, I know all you see is the tunnel and the curve, but there is a light around, you know, as soon as we get around that curve, you're going to see the light. There is, there is light. There, there is hope. And these are the things that we want to look at. It says, the haughty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of man shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And he's going to say, you know, none of you are really all that. You know, uh, you know the, the term that one of the pastors I used to listen to, he, he thinks he's all that, and, and, you know, or another one said he, he thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah. Uh, any, any of these terms that, you know, and we know these type of people. You know, we know that there's those people out there, and hopefully we're not them. <laughs> but you know what? What I have found out over the years are most of the people that think that way don't think that they're thinking that highly of themselves in most cases. It's just a pattern that they've gotten into. But we want to be aware of that. Am I looking down on people for any reason? And if I am, then we step back and say, okay, I need to humble myself and help these people. 
And when God's working in that area of your life, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to make you struggle in that area. But you know, the more we realize that they are just children of God struggling as we are struggling and really come to grips with the fact that we're struggling. And, and this is very important. Every single Christian, no matter how mature they are, has areas that they struggle in. Everyone. Whether they recognize it or not, it's not always, <laughs> not always there. But we all have that. And, I, and I've likened it many times about, you know, when we first get saved, God kind of holds a match to our life and says, okay, get rid of these, get rid of these dirty things in your life. When you're, when you're at the 30 or 40 year mark and you've knocked out a bunch of things in your life, he shines a lighthouse light in your, in your life and says, hey, now look at those corners over there. You see, you thought you, thought you, were, you were getting there, but I'm going to show you that you've got a long ways to go. And whatever the next light up above a can, <laughs> lighthouse would be, you know, he just keeps shining a brighter and brighter light deeper and deeper into our heart to show us and keep us humble. Because otherwise, if he didn't do that, it would be, okay, God, I've got rid of this, I got rid of that, I got rid of this, I got rid of this. I'm the best Christian in the church. I don't have any outward problems. And everybody, you know, the few problems I have really aren't that bad. Nobody knows about them. God, I am so wonderful. Yeah, we laugh about that, but, you know, there are a lot of Christians out there that do that. They just get so puffed up and proud of all, their all that their life has changed and really make other people feel very small, insignificant, and possibly that they can't even succeed in their, in their walk. This was the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees of Jesus' day. You know, look at us. We keep all the law. And Jesus kept going, you know, well, what's in your heart? Your heart is just as evil. You may not be outwardly projecting it. And you know, it's a whole lot easier to get rid of outward projected sins than it is to get rid of the sins of the heart. Because nobody knows them. Nobody sees them. When you commit that one, it's only you and God that knows that you've committed it until he shouts it from the housetop if you keep doing it. But, uh, you know, and this is something that is so important for us to understand. God wants our heart humbled and cleansed so that we can minister to other people because if we start getting proud about how far we've come then people are going to be rejecting the message because we're being lifted up and this verse says that for the that only the Lord alone will be exalted in that day no person is going to be exalted because of their obedience and their their following him and only God will be exalted Verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every man that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that lifts up his head shall, be brought, shall he be brought down, uh, brought low. All right, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone. The day of the Lord is that return. The day when he takes Satan out, and he, uh, they've gone through the tribulation period, and he comes in and he binds Satan for a thousand years. Cast them into hell for a thousand years. Now, when I say this, are you all aware that hell is a temporary dwelling place for the angels and the evil? At the white throne judgment, death and Hades and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the permanent punishment place. Okay? I made a statement that I want to make sure you all understood the full... There's many names for hell. Hell, Tartarus, uh, uh, Hades, uh, you know, l numbers of names. But the lake of fire refers to that last judgment after the white throne judgment where they'll be cast in for all of eternity. It's the only one I know of used for that, for that particular. And I'm not going to say there isn't another one, but off the top of my head, I can't think of another term for the lake of fire because it's, it is the permanent. And it's after the white, it's after the white throne judgment, the death, hell, uh, all the e uh, demons and Satan and all those who followed, rejected Christ will be cast into the lake of, lake of fire for eternity. There's not much difference between the lake of fire and, and hell as far as the descriptions of them, uh, other than the lake of fire is eternal the, and hell is a hold, holding place until they're cast into the lake of fire. So, all right. So after that period, then there would be no more hell or anything. It would just be the lake of fire. Just the lake of fire. Yeah, just 
yeah, and well, for the punished people, the lake of fire. And uh, then everybody else will be coming into the new heaven, new earth, and enjoying their life. So the day of the Lord is after the thousand-year reign of Jesus? No, before. before. It's at the end of the tribulation period, at the beginning of the beginning of his reign. Might even refer to most, if not all, of the millennial kingdom, but it, okay. very specifically, when they say the, the awesome and great day of the Lord, they're usually referring to that end of the uh, tribulation period when Jesus comes down, destroys Satan's reign, and establishes his kingdom. But technically, you could say that it goes on for the entire thousand years because that's all his day, his reign. But when the most specific is, and you're going to see, in, in the day of the Lord, such and such happened. In the, day, in the uh, uh, great day of the Lord, this happened, and it's, it's his victorious conquering, you know, taking back of the world. All right, for in the day of the Lord, the, the host of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. This is getting into some repetitiveness here. He's trying to make sure people understand everybody will be subject to Christ during that period of time. Nobody is going to lift themselves up and say, you know, look at me, I, I'm, I'm great, I'm this, I'm that, because everything will be because of Jesus. They're even alive because of Jesus. They're, they made it through the tribulation period without taking the mark of the beast because of God. It is a critical issue. Why are we doing what we do as a church? Are we trying to lift ourselves up and our, and our profit motives, or are we trying to minister to people? And oftentimes these things start out with a good mo ministry motivation. We're going to help minister food to the hungry, and before long it becomes this great big, uh, great big ministry, and then all of a sudden you need to make money, and you've got to show that you're making money to get money, and, and all of a sudden your, your motivation is no longer helping the people. It's you're spending more time trying to get the donations to help the people and raise money and do all these things, and you are ministering to the people that you are trying to help in the first place. Verse 13. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant pictures. So he's given a whole list of here. Okay. The trees of Lebanon do not consider themselves high and lifted up, but men highly praised the cedars of Lebanon. Okay, they, they made wonderful furniture and, and paneling and all these things. And for a long time, Lebanon was known for its cedar trees. And uh, so it says, you know, the cedar trees of Lebanon, they're, they're considered high and, high and lofty and very valuable. Uh, then he goes to the oaks of Bashan. Bashan has been mentioned several times in the scriptures or is mentioned several times in the scriptures. It has oak trees. It has, very, it has large cattle uh, that... Uh, pastures and, and produced very good cattle in their day. And it says, they're oaks of Bashan. You know, you think they're special? You know, not even those are that great. The high mountains and the hills that are lifted up. And again, he's starting to, to take what man's attitude is about these things and kind of, he's kind of tongue in cheek, you know, the cedars we think are so special, you know, they're, they're high and lofty. The oak trees, you know, they're, they're high and lofty. The mountaintops, they're, they're high and lofty. And, you know, the mountains have always been associated with worship throughout, throughout the time. These are things that man think are special. Yeah. The cedars of Lebanon, the oak tree, you know, you want to make your stuff out of oak. It lasts forever. The mountaintops, you know, where we want to go and where we want to have our experience. So I think that's what he's referring to. I don't think he's talking about the fact that all these things can be used for idols. Yeah, okay, but I don't think that's what Isaiah is referring to at this time. Later on he's going to. Uh, but I don't think he's referring to that at this point. I think he's just saying, these are things you think are great. Yeah. Uh, every high tower and every fenced wall, okay? And basically saying, all your fortified cities, you think they're so great. And they were necessary. They were important, okay? You had your walled cities, which gave you protection. You had the, the towers on the corners at least, at the very least. And you could close the gates and keep your, keep your enemy out. And remember, I've told you that there are also towers that dotted the land around the, around the city in case you couldn't 
get to the city before the enemy came. And if you were closer to the tower, you ran to the tower and got yourself protected in a small tower. Easier, easier to get into, but more protection than being caught in the field. So he's saying, you know, your, your fenced cities and your towers that you think are lofty. And upon the ships of Tarshish, now people are familiar with Tarshish, if you know the story of Jonah, that's where, that's where Jonah was running to Tarshish to get away from Nineveh. When God told him to go to Nineveh, which was north, northeast of Jerusalem, he said, I'm going west. <laughs> I'm going the opposite way, God. Uh, Tarshish. And Tarshish was very famous for their ships and their, and their ports. And so he says, you know, hey, all these, all these things. And then he says, and your pleasant pictures. And these are literally images and have the implication of idols. Here's the first place where he seems to have an indication of an idol. Uh, the Jewish people at that time did not get into uh, statues and painting because they considered them the possibility of somebody worshiping. So they really did not do many of that unless they were creating an idol. And here it says, and your pleasant pictures. Yeah, I was going to say in notes here, I, I think I got my question answered. It says here, Cedars of Lebanon, Old Sebastian, are metaphors for kings and commanders. High mountains, hills are figures of speech for nations and cities. High tower, 45 wall, represent military fortresses. Ships of Tarshish, beautiful slopes, signify human com commerce. Never thought about it. It's a good. It's a good thought. It's a really good thought. Pictures. What, what he said. What he just said is that he's going from kings, military, and then man. What man is able to do, and it's very possible. I I just thought of them as how lofty men consider them, but it, it could be more picturesque and poetic. When it comes to those kind of pictures, I have no problem with that because that is a good good drawing in it, and it did group them in certain groups. Uh, whether, but again, whether, whether it's a poetic statement for each of those, a symbolic poetic symbol for it, or literally just these things are exalted in your mind. Either way works. Uh, and I never thought about that, but that could be very easily what he's using. Groupings of things and going back to people, as you say. Uh, because it is true that the oak trees and the cedar trees usually represent kingdoms. Oftentimes represent kingdoms. As we saw last night with Jotham's uh, prophecy about the olive tree and the fig tree and the vine and the vine and then coming down to the bramble representing people uh, so it is quite possible I'm not going to disagree with that one at all, that that opinion at all but he says but he lists here all these things that are lofty and high you know, whether it's the picture of the people behind them or even just the things themselves things that are exalted and you know we tend to exalt all kinds of things you know, we, we tend to exalt people. We tend to exalt things and put them on a place much higher than they're supposed to be. And the people could be anywhere from our presidents and senators to superstar athletes and, and actors and actresses that are the, the top of it, to pastors, to even sometimes our own family members. We look at our mothers and fathers and say, well, they're just so wonderful, especially as we get older. <laughs> You know, and, they, and their parents stop, stop becoming stupid. <laughs> you know, as we get out of our teens and 20s and get into our 30s and 40s, we start realizing that our parents weren't as dumb as we thought they were. And they might have even been pretty smart <laughs> if I had listened to them. And sometimes we can lift them up too high. And the problem is, anytime you lift a person or a thing up too high, it's going to disappoint you. Because God is going to bring it down. He's going to make sure it gets brought down, in, at least in your eyesight. And if others are doing it, he'll make sure that person is brought down. Many pastors have come crashing down off their pedestals because they've lifted themselves up, and people have almost worshipped them rather than God. And God says, okay, let your sin, let's let your sins be seen by people and see how long you stay in that. Because God says, I'm the one that's going to be exalted. During the millennial kingdom, he's going to make sure he's the only one exalted. He's going to bring everybody low every time they get this prideful thought. Because pride is what brought Satan down. Satan started out as, the, as Lucifer, the archangel. He was in charge of all the angelic forces. He was in charge of bringing praise to God, and he decided that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to be like God. And if you read this, the seven I wills of Satan, it goes, I will ascend to the mount. I will sit 
on the seat next to God. And basically, he was not saying, I want to be greater than God. He was, not, he was smart enough, at least at that point, to realize he couldn't be greater than the creator. But he says, I will be like him. I'm going to, be, I'm going to sit next to him. And God cast him out of heaven. And God cast him out of heaven. All right? And that is the biggest sin that man has had ever since. Because wasn't that the sin that he asked for, for Adam and Eve? You know, Eve, God's keeping a secret from you. He knows that the moment you eat that, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And man fell hook, line, and sinker for pride, just as Satan had. With his, and that's been his major sin temptation ever since. Because what is really the bottom line of almost every sin is pride. You know, I can do these drugs because I am so strong that the drugs will never get hold of me. You know, I am just that strong as you're hooked to them and addicted to them for the rest of your life. Yeah, I just don't want to. I'm, I'm strong. I, I, I am, I am Superman. I can, you know, I can get through this. Pride is basically the center of almost every sin, and probably is the center of every sin. I can't off the top of my head think of anything that wouldn't be having its roots in pride. Okay? Why does somebody go into an adulterous affair? Because they're just not getting what I want, and I'm so important that I have to be, be get my needs met, so I'm going to go find somebody who meets my needs. Okay? And anytime you find yourself using me and I in your, in your thought process, you're in trouble. Because that's pride stepping up and saying, I am what's most important. Our generation is a, is a generation of me. What is good for me? You know, uh, you're on the road and you, you're coming up to an accident or something you need to merge and nobody will let the other person in because they need that nine feet of space to get, to get a quarter of a second ahead of you. And if they would just merge, the traffic would move no problem. But I am so important that I just cannot let this person get in front of me. I am so important that I have to have this and that other person can't have this. Pride. And our, and our world is centered in pride right now. And it's only getting worse. And that's our sin nature reaching out and saying, I'm going to get what I want. And here it is, he's saying all these things. All these things are so valuable. Verse 17, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of man shall be made low, and the Lord alone which shall be exalted in that day. Okay, he's repeating this. Doesn't that sound a little familiar from, from just before, when he, before he went to the trees? He goes, uh, you're going to bow down and I'm going to be exalted. God wants to be exalted. And when we put him first in all of our decisions, life goes a lot easier. Life goes a lot better when he is put first. Because you know what he does? When we, when we exalt him, he rewards us for exalting him. And he gives us the blessings that we don't deserve. And he goes, you're lifting me up? Here, <laughs> let, me, let me pour out some blessings on you. And we see all these things going on. Verse 18, and the idols he shall utterly abolish. The millennial kingdom will be the first time in man's history when all the idols will be abolished. He's going to get rid of them. Now, we see idols at various times when certain kings would rise to power. They would clean up most of the, most of the idols. And then there'd be this little statement but he, did, he neglected to remove the groves, or he neglected to move the high places, or he neglected to, to do this, that, or the other thing. Each one, even the good kings, usually had that little statement. He didn't get rid of these, these idols. Gideon in the ephod. Gideon in the ephod, and we see this over and over again. Uh, we're going to see it with Samson, where Samson doesn't obey God's command for how he's supposed to live his life, and doesn't recognize that his strength comes from God until... You know, he's ready to bring the temple down, <laughs> bring the house down, <laughs> and kill all the people in the temple. Uh, but he never understands it. We see in, in uh, Jacob's day, he gets, ready, he gets on fire for God, and he says, okay, we're going to get rid of all the household idols. And instead of burning them and destroying them, you read, he buries them under a tree in Shechem. Which <laughs> <laughs> Shechem is the place we talked about last night. They're still following idols. Okay. Uh, but we see this over and over where the idols are not fully gotten rid of. Uh, like you should have smashed the 
Yeah, well, get rid of them. Make, make sure they're not usable. But that's not usually what man does with our idols. Because just as with our sin and our idols, we try to put them into captivity and under control. The sin nature does not like to be kept under control. And idols do not like to stay under captivity. These, that, these must be destroyed. They must be crucified. Always. Because if you think you've got victory over it and it's still in your life, it's going to show you that it's not gone and it's still got a lot of power. You know, that's the person who keeps getting off their alcohol and falling off the wagon back into their alcohol because it has not been, the desire has not been crucified. They just keep it locked away. The person who has lustful thoughts and, and has acted on them in the past and thinks that they've got it all just tucked away neatly into a, into a little cage finds out it comes roaring back if it's not crucified. Important for us that our flesh and our desires are crucified. And that takes God doing it. We can discipline our flesh, but only God will crucify it. And that's what he wants to do. Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ. And that is that I am crucified. Not I crucify, but I am crucified, which means somebody is doing it to me, which is God. If I let him, he will crucify my sin. You know, all I can do is put it in a cage and try to discipline it. And my favorite example is uh, Siegfried and Royd when they got attacked by their, their lion. pet lion, which was still wild because for a moment in that cage, he forgot that he was dealing with a wild animal and turned his back on it long enough for it to take advantage of it. Sin will do just that with us. We forget that we have a wild animal in our midst. We turn our back on it, and it comes back with a vengeance. And it doesn't usually stop where we left off. It usually takes us deeper than we want to. He will show, shall abolish your idols, and they shall go into the holes of the rock and in the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of the majesty when he rises up to shake terrible the earth. So there's going to be these people during the millennial kingdom that are wanting to sin, that are going to be so afraid that they're going to be trying to hide. Literally, maybe even literally, get into the caves. You know, if I go deep enough into the caves, God won't see me. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking about, but <laughs> it's easy no matter. It may also be more figuratively, but I, there are certain things after this that make it sound like they're literally trying to go underground. Yeah, but there's a positiveness there in that one because Jesus, is, Jesus really is our rock. Here they're talking about literally the caves. Here they're really talking about the caves. They're going to go hide in their, in their flesh and in their own strength. We're starting out with a spiritual hiding in the rock, which Jesus is the rock. Now they're going to go to the holes in the rock, and which represents the flesh trying to do the same thing, but trying to do it in its own way. And again, that's a problem we have as people. God, I want to, I want to obey you, but I'm going to do it my way. Uh, uh, God, you say it's to be crucified. Well, I just want to put it in a cage and keep it, keep it under captivity. But you said that was a good point. Mine said to enter on, on verse 10. It says, enter into the rock, hide thee in the dust for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of the majesty. Right. Why, why do we go into Jesus Christ? Again, because of the fear of the Lord and we hide in him and let him be our righteousness. He is our rock. And I think this, I know this is my opinion that it starts out positive. Now, most of the commentaries think that that's negative as well, but I think it's positive. I think it's talking about hiding in Jesus, Jesus Christ at that point, and then later on I see this deprivation as we're going further and further into the sin, and then man trying to do things his way. Now, you can take it the way you want. I mean, it's not, not going to be a problem because this is my opinion about that first verse. Right. I see it. I see this as a downward, downward pro, pro, uh, progression, and you see that pattern a lot in the scriptures, where you start at the height and you go down, yeah. and that's what I see here. Uh, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but because every commentary I read did not say that that was a that verse ten was positive. Okay, they considered it negative because the whole chapter is negative. I see that as positive. I just can't see hide in, in the rock as being negative when Jesus is always considered the rock that we're to hide in. Uh, my opinion, worth what it is. 
which is not much. Hiding the cave under an earthquake. Well, that's what's happening. They're hiding in the the caves, and he's because the earth is shaking. But you really want to understand here, though, man often does stupid things when they're not following God. You know, we do stupid things when we're not being obedient to God. And then we kind of look back and say, why would I ever have done something like that? You know, I knew God said, don't do that. And I went and did it anyway. Here's people that don't even want to follow God doing really stupid things. All right. It's bad enough when we do it. You know, it's bad enough when they do it and they don't really have a choice. It's really bad when we do it. Oh, oh, he's been in tra- he's been in charge and he's going to do all kinds of things. They've already had a great earthquake that's toppled the mountains and, and all these other things during Revelation before this event has happened. Yeah. Uh, and remember, all the tribulation. These people know the tribulation period. They know all the supernatural earthquake and everything that is that has befallen them, and yet they're still not, there's still a part of them that aren't willing to bend to God's will. It's an amazing thought, you know, how hard-headed some people are, you know, but we as Christians can be hard-headed too, we just don't usually as blatant about it, uh, but we can be hard-headed, but this world is, that, that want to sin and aren't really his children are going to be hard-headed. And it says, in that day the men shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, into the holes and into the caves. Yeah. Okay, it's kind, of a meta, it's kind of a poetic way of saying they're being cast into these holes and the, and the caves that they were just talking about. Uh, and I don't think they're going in, they're casting them in there just to get rid of them. I think they're casting them in there because they're hiding in there. They're trying to worship these idols and stuff in secret. And again, we do this as Christians oftentimes. We, we do our sinning in secret. You know? And I've heard people say, well, if, if I just don't want people to know what I'm doing because they might think bad of me. Okay, well, it's going to come out sooner or later anyway. God says your sin, be sure your sin will find you out. You're much better admitting it to God and getting it out in the open and, and asking for forgiveness than having God bring it out. And we see this oftentimes. Somebody like... Uh, Jimmy Swaggart, who got into an adulterous affair and got, he got called out and he lost his church and you know, lost his position as pastor because somehow he felt he was above the rules and got caught up in his sin when it was pointed out to him. He didn't repent initially and his sin was shouted from the housetops. And I've said this oftentimes, your sin being shouted from the housetop will be in direct proportion to what kind of testimony you have before people. So if you're just a person that has a small family, family reputation, your family will be the one that gets your sin shouted to. If you're a, a leader out in the open and, and, and making your, your reputation be part of who you are and you sin, you're asking for a lot of people to get to know your sin. Because God says, I'm going to shout it out. You know, you know, you, you, you're dealing with five people, they're all going to know. You deal with 100 people, they're going to know. You're dealing with millions of people, everybody's going to know your sin. Yeah. And this is the way God works. It's in proportion. His punishment is always in proportion to what he's punishing. All right? And we see this. Your test is in proportion to what you are learning. And I've shared this many times. If you're in kindergarten level learning for Jesus, you're not going to get a doctorate level test. Yeah. And that's sometimes you look at somebody and go, how are they getting through that? Well, but they've, been, they've grown to where they can get through that. And we've used this in some of the uh, biographies we've read as we watch people learn and grow to go through some of the hard things they go through later on. And if you skip to the end of the book, you'd have gone, how could they have ever gone through this? But if you read the whole book, oh, this little test and this little test and this little test brought them to this huge test, which I'm sure glad God didn't put me in that huge test. Well, if he did, he'd have brought you through the same steps to get you there. And that doesn't mean you're going to pass the, the, big, the big, huge one just because you've had a lot of steps. But at least you're ready to, to take that test. You know, again, it's not the kindergartner trying to take the doctorate test. And it's not the doctorate, te- doctorate student trying to take a kindergarten test. You know, God's test is commensurate with where you're at with him spiritually. 
Where are we in the word of God? Which is another reason we can't judge one another because we don't know really where they're at. And if we were walking in their shoes, maybe we would have fallen long before they did. We'd have fallen at the test that took them there, not the test that dropped them. So this is one of the reasons we need to be very careful with as we look at one another and we encourage and edify and lift up. Because if we went through the same exact things, we probably would have fallen years before. You know, and that's why we've got to be careful. When I look at somebody like a Jimmy Swagger, I'm not going to judge him because I don't know what brought him to the place where he finally fell. I can't. You know, I might have fallen long before he had fallen. Not that I ever think I would, but I might have. Because who knows what attacks he had because he was a very visible Christian leader. And Satan is going to attack the more successful, visible people a lot harder, a lot faster, because if he can take them out, then a lot of people fall because they've lifted him up. You know, and we said this, if you're just somebody sitting in the pew of the church on Sunday morning and you don't plan to do anything with anything you're learning, Satan doesn't really like it that you're going to church, but he's nearly not that worried. If you're somebody who's going to listen to what's being said and you're going to go out and you're going to witness and you're going to teach, you're going to share what you're learning, you start grabbing his attention. And the more you do it, the more you will grab his attention. And you know what? In our church, we minister around the world through the internet. We are not just a little small church that has no influence out there. Not that we have great influence, but there are people all around this world listening to us, which makes us a target of probably not Satan himself, but some of his, his uh, demons to say, let's try to shake things up. And this is why we all have to be careful. Myself as a pastor, that I don't go the wrong direction. All the individuals in the church, because you know Satan can destroy churches so fast by just a little whisper. You know what so-and-so did, or you know, you, know what, you know what that pastor said, you know, how could he have said that? He was speaking directly to me. And you say it to somebody else, and they go, you know what, I've had the same experience. I'm sure that he's, he's preaching at me sometime. And the next thing you know, there's this split and schisms going on in the church, and everything falls apart. We need to be on guard. We need to be ready and realize that Satan stops ministries that are moving forward. And he always makes these attacks. And we need to be very careful, very careful about all of this. It's funny sometimes I think that when you do minister, you have certain topics that it kind of, what some of my problems were sometimes, you know, it's like. <laughs> we have all been there at various times, like, has the pastor been following me around this week? And, you know, sometimes there's times when I be, I'm very careful not to say certain things. You know, I'm going, I'm in the middle of it. I go, God, you want me to say that? Are you sure, are you sure it's you, God, and not just me wanting to deal with something? Uh, because if I know that I'm going to step on somebody's toes, I am very careful about saying it. Uh, now, if I step on your toes, usually it's because I didn't know I was going to, uh, because I don't know. But sometimes there's always a reason for it. And I have, I have had the same experience in my lifetime. You know, all of a sudden it's like, you know, okay, how did, Pastor, how did you know that I've been dealing with this all this week? Or as I'm listening to the radio and these radio pastors start preaching about something that, I, that I'm working on. Uh, but you just know it's the Holy Spirit. Once you mature, you know it's the Holy Spirit. Especially sometimes when I devotion in the morning, I cannot believe it. Wait a minute, how did they know that? Yeah, it goes right along with what you thought. Yeah. And it's always that and this is what's important to us. They all match that name. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait a minute. All right. And then the last, last verse in this chapter. Cease you from men whose breath is in his nostrils, for therein is he to be accounted for or made a reckoning of. Okay. So in other words, he's finalizing this whole statement. Well, there's going to be a reckoning for everybody who lives. There is a day of judgment. Uh, it says, Every, for every man that is appointed and wants to die, and after that, the judgment. There is a judgment coming for every single person who's ever been born on this, in this life. For us as Christians, if we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our judgment is the Bema seat where he just says, okay, let's see what comes in when I throw all your works in the fire and see what you will let me do for you, and he rewards us. That's our judgment, the Bema seat judgment. For the lost people, the people who have rejected Jesus Christ, it's going to be the white throne judgment. And when they stand before them at the white throne judgment, they're guilty and they will be sent into the lake of fire. And that's all people will face a judgment. So basically, if you're standing in front of the white throne judgment, you're through anyway. 
You're, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because uh, if you're standing there, you didn't go to the Bema seat as one of Jesus' followers. So basically, show us the white To be shown your guilt and be, sh and be shown that you are deserving what you get. Because I believe at that point he's going to show every time that you heard that he was God, every time you heard that he had a free gift for you, uh, every time you saw it in nature, every time you saw it, he's going to reveal to every single person at the white throne judgment, you are guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. You are guilty and you're getting what you wanted because of your, your rejection of Jesus. Well, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Yeah, I... <laughs> I, I am very glad that I won't be standing at the White Throne Judgment. Yeah, I will be standing at the Bema Sun. Very important on that uh, to understand the difference between the two. And we will be accepted by him. We will be on his right side, the side of acceptance. And he will say, welcome to my kingdom. And the others, he's going to say, depart, I never knew you. Especially to those who thought they were good and had never accepted him. And those who had just rejected him over time. Okay, all of these are people needing to be humbled. And then he says, cease you. So we go back to the previous context, which is all these people that are needing to be humbled. Okay, so cease you and then to be accounted for literally means to make an account or make a, a, the day of reckoning. Okay, and all of us will make a, make a day of reckoning before God, whether it's the Bema seat where, he, where Jesus throws all of our works in the fire or the white throne judgment where he says guilty and shows us our guilt. There'll be a lot of people, the majority of the people probably are going to the white throne judgment. Because Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't die. And all through the scriptures, we see that there's only a remnant that follows God. Just a small portion of the people. Sometimes it's a bigger remnant than others. But it's always a remnant, a very few that are following after him. And before the, the deluge of, of Noah, ended up only being Noah. You know, the God, yeah, yeah, yeah. and God rescued his family, not because his family was good, because the only one he said was righteous was Noah. Yeah. Noah's family was rescued because Noah was righteous. Now, that's hard to understand. If they're in hell, <laughs> and then they go to the white throne, they're in hell, they already know they're damned, don't they? The, I would think so. So then they go to the white throne? They go to the white throne, which will be the, the absolute... Oh, Every knee will bow at the white throne judgment, including Satan's. Yeah, I, I like. I don't know what that accomplishes, though, if they already know they're damned in hell, and then they just transfer to the... It is the judicial statement that you are guilty. If you want to look at it from our judicial system, hell would be the jail cell that you're put into waiting for your court trial date. So some of them are thinking that they're still going to... Escape. Many of them are still going to think they're going to get out. Uh, somehow I can talk my way out of it. I deserve, if you want to look at it that way, hell would be the, the jail cell, the waiting cell. The white throne judgment is your court date. And the lake of fire is prison, is, is prison in this case, eternal, eternal or eternal. Once we are dead, we either stand before God as a Christian in the beam of seat judgment and we get, go into his presence or you're going to be in the holding cell waiting for the judgment, waiting for your trial. And yes, they probably know they're doing just as most criminals know that they're guilty when they go stand in front of the court. And this is the greatest thing that we have. God gives us an entire lifetime to make it an eternal decision. And once we die, our destiny is locked in. Because once we get our glorified body and our sin nature is removed, we won't sin. For all of eternity, we won't sin. And we won't have the desires to do all these wrong things. And what we learn, we'll, we'll remember. And all these wonderful things that heaven will be. It's hard to fathom what heaven's going to be like. It's hard to fathom what, what, it, what it will mean to have 100 septillion years from now and just not even being any closer to the end. And we still haven't even begun. You know, no less days to praise his name than when we first begun. <laughs> even when there's 63 zeros, when there's a... When there's, uh, 100 million trillion <laughs> zeros after that 10, we still have just begun. We can't fathom that as human beings. And that's what most, most theologians, most pastors will tell you. Think of the best thing you can possibly think, about, think of and multiply it by a million and you're still not even close to what heaven's going to be like. Yeah. 
The same thing you can do for hell. Think of the worst thing you can possibly imagine and multiply it by a million and you're still not even close to how bad it's going to be. And it has been said, and I agree with it, for a Christian, this world is as close to hell as we're going to ever be. And it's not anywhere close to hell. But for those who are headed to hell, this world is as close to heaven as they're ever going to have. And that's a sad, sad thought. This is something we don't understand either side of the coin. We don't understand what heaven or our destination is fully going to be like, and we just get small glimpses of it. And people have reckoned, you know, said it, it would be like trying to talk about snow to an aborigine. Yeah. He's never seen snow. He's never seen the concept of snow. He doesn't have the concept of snow. All he knows is rain. Mm-hmm. Okay? Try to explain snow to him. That's the problem with God trying to tell us about eternal life, about heaven, even about hell. How do you describe something that is just beyond anything that we can possibly imagine? You know, and he tries, he tries in the words, but words just cannot capture. We need to, as Christians, not dwell a lot on both of them, but we do need to think about them so that we know the destination and what, is, what we're comparing this world to. The disciples said, thank God I've been worthy of suffering. Why? Because they counted the temporary sufferings of this world to the glories that were prepared to them for eternity. Yeah. At least the sufferings on this world we can go through with God. Yeah, but even if it's even if it's totally harsh and and it's breaking us, our attitude would be it's only temporary. And the more that I look at it, of it's only temporary, and heaven awaits me. And heaven's eternity. You know, even if I lived a thousand years, what is a thousand years compared to all of eternity? And Paul says this quite frequently. You know, the light afflictions of today compared to the immeasurable blessings of eternity. And when Paul was saying light afflictions, beating, shipwreck, stoned to death, uh, thrown into prison, and he was calling those light afflictions. Why? Because his eyes were on heaven. His eyes were on eternity being blessed by God. And he could say, these are just light. They're going to be over. The pain I'm feeling in my body is just going to be temporary. The, the beatings I've taken are just temporary. And, you know, if we can really grab hold of that picture, it'll give us the strength to go through an awful lot. The light afflictions of this world compared to eternity. And for being soul winners, we really do need to get some glimpse of how bad hell is. Because that will be what motivates us to share the gospel with people. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to look at the future millennial kingdom and how you're going to bring all low and that you're going to be exalted. And we just thank you for all that you do in your son's name. Amen.